Okay. The, uh, the story is told of three men who were deep in theological thought and discussion as to how to give to God. And I'm certain that some of us have had uh, these uh, discussions, you know, how to give and how much to give and, you know, kind of gone through those issues and, you know, the planning for giving and things like that. And we can relate to some of these things. And, and so the first man, he came up with the idea. He said that each week, he said, I cash my paycheck. I draw a circle on the floor of the room in our house that has the vaulted ceiling. And uh, we throw the cash up in the air. And whatever comes down and lands within the circle is what we give to God that week. And the other two guys were looking at him kind of strange. And the second guy had a big smile on his face because he said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but we do the exact same thing. The only difference is, is that when the money comes down, what lands outside the circle is what we give to God. And the third guy looked at the other two and said, you know, you guys are kind of crazy. He goes, we do the same thing. We cash our check, we, we get the money, we throw it up in the air, and we figure whatever God needs, he'll keep. <laughs> and what he doesn't, he'll just send on back down our way. So anyway, the point is, is that, you know, we're always looking for an out, you know, a way to become less generous, less giving, and unfortunately, as a result, uh, you know, more selfish, and there's nothing new with uh, such a philosophy. You know, I like uh, the tongue-in-cheek definition that I heard of philosophers. Do you know who, who philosophers are? Philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand, and they make you think it's your fault. And I kind of like that. It's like, what, what did you just say? And it's like, well, don't you understand? It's like, well, no. And there's a lot of philosophies that are floating around. Most of them are more confusing than they're helpful. And what's interesting is that those that are clear enough to be understood usually end up focusing full attention upon ourselves. For example, Greece said, be wise and know yourself. Rome said, be strong and discipline yourself. Religion says to be good and conform yourself. Epicureanism, be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Education, be resourceful and expand yourself. Psychology, be confident and assert yourself. Materialism, be satisfied, please yourself. Pride says, be superior and promote yourself. Humanism, be capable, believe in yourself. Legalism, be pious, limit yourself. Philanthropy, be generous and release yourself. And hopefully, you've noticed the one negative pattern is that everything has to do with ourselves. The focus is us. The focus of every one of these philosophies is to focus on self. Well, the Bible quite clearly teaches that we're to put others ahead of ourselves, to be a servant, as we learned last time we were together, and to be givers. If you've got your Bible, uh, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. If you don't have your Bible, I understand there's some nice ones in a basket <laughs> in the back of the room that you can help yourself. You might be able to pick out one that's better than the one you got. But Philippians chapter 2, 
Let's read these words. In Philippians 2, the Bible says in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice that in verse 3. <clears throat> Do nothing. Nothing. Zero. Period. Do nothing from what? These two things. Selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing that comes from selfishness or empty conceit. Stop permitting these two strong tendencies in our lives because of sin nature to control you. Stop permitting selfishness or empty conceit from controlling what you do. These two strong tendencies are to be counteracted by that which we learn from God in the Word of God. He says, do nothing. Don't do anything that has to do with selfishness. Don't do anything that has to do with empty conceit or pride. And to identify these certain patterns in order to take action against or to make a countermeasure. For example, if we know that we're prone to selfishness and we know that we're prone to empty conceit or to be prideful people, if we know that that's a tendency or tendencies because of sin nature, then we're to be aware of that and come up with a countermeasure before we do something that leads to a problem in those areas. Since we already know we're selfish, don't put yourself in a position to encourage your own selfishness. And it's a tendency. And the whole purpose of understanding tendencies is to take action. And the only thing that I can relate it to, unfortunately, is sports. <laughs> and so I will give you a sports illustration or two and, you know, and take it for whatever it's worth. But for example, in baseball, you know, a batter doesn't want to be standing up there you know, with a count of one ball and two strikes. And the reason for it is, is because he's lost his advantage against the pitcher. Now, if the pitcher's in that position, he will have a tendency to throw a certain pitch based on a pitch count in situations. So he already knows going in, if I can get him in the hole and throw him a one-two pitch, that the batter knows he's going to throw a one-two pitch, he's probably going to throw me that nasty split finger, and I got to be looking for it, and there's not much I'm going to be able to do with it, but when it comes, at least, you know, I'll have somewhat of an, you know, somewhat of, an, of a chance, feeble as it will be, you know, and you see that, and you go, wow, how did he look so bad? It's, well, he knew it was coming, but there was nothing he can do about it. 
See, in the picture, it's the same way. He goes, man, I love it. I got him in a one-two count, and now I can throw him a bunch of junk, at least for the next two pitches, and make him try to hit my pitch. So there are tendencies that you look for, and you try to counteract them by coming up with something that would be better. Football's the same way. It's like, you know, certain downs and distances, you know, it's going to force somebody either to have to run the ball or have to throw the ball or put them in a position where, you know, they're going to have to do something that you've put them in that position because of the way that the downs went before you got to third and 13 or third and 20 or whatever. So isn't that interesting, ladies? <laughs> Preach it, brother. <laughs> I need the rest. <laughs> All right. So guys, it's kind of like you let your, your wife go shopping with her friend. <laughs> and there's a sale that's going on that day. And the tendency will be, she's going to buy something. So how do you counteract that tendency? You, you try to figure out when those sale days are, and you become extremely nice to her on those days, and you distract her from the sale. And you take her to the movie, or somewhere where it'll be a lot cheaper than if you let her go with her friend shopping. Preach it, brother. <laughs> there we go. Now we know where we're going. So anyway, but in the case of uh, Philippians chapter 2, you know, we're not going to get behind, you know, we can't get behind in the count, and, and, we, we, and we, you know, we do so by replacing selfishness and empty conceit, notice this, with what? But with humility of mind. But with humility of mind. That's how we, as believers, counteract selfishness and empty conceit. How do we protect ourselves from our own selfishness? Humility of mind. How do we protect ourselves from our own empty conceit? Humility of mind. How do we apply that? Listen very carefully. By regarding others as more important than ourselves. If we consider others more important than ourselves, we will not fall to the tendencies of selfishness and empty conceit. Do you consider others more important than yourself? Do you look for ways to support, to encourage, to build up, to stimulate the other person, as it says in Hebrews, to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing closer. See, it requires an attitude that would rather give than receive. Would you rather give or receive? If you would rather receive, then you're setting yourself up for those tendencies of selfishness and empty conceit. But humility is in the mind. 
It starts with how we think. The humility of the mind, that we're humble in our mind. It's an attitude, it's a preset mentality that basically says, you know, today, and I'm hoping that at the end of our time together, that you will make a mental note that says, you know what, today, I'm going to care more about those around me than I do myself. Today, I'm going to look for ways to put others first. Today, I'm going to go out of my way, which it may be just, it may be going out of your way, but it may be the most natural thing for the person next to you because that mentality they've embraced a long time ago. To consider others more important than myself isn't going out of my way because that's something that, you know, God has put on my heart 25 years ago. And so it becomes so, it becomes natural because the supernatural, the spirit of God now living within us is now living through us. And what used to be, you know, unnatural becomes natural, supernatural. It's God living through us conforming us into the image of his son. Today, it's going to be my sincere desire to curb my own fierce competitiveness and those tendencies and turn that energy into encouraging another person in being successful. Today, I don't have to win. Today, I don't have to win every argument my wife and I are great together because we're so competitive. <laughs> and, and, and all that means is that for people who wouldn't know us real well and would listen in, competitive could come across as being argumentative. <laughs> it could be mistakenly identified <laughs> as being argumentative. But we're not argumentative, we're highly competitive. <laughs> and that's why I won't play any games with her at all. <laughs> Anything, I don't care what it is. And, and they, go, she, they go, go in that room, just have at it. Do whatever you wanna do. And it, it's been like that for, we've known each other over 30 some years. And I, can, I still get the sweats <laughs> when I think about going to her parents' house and listen to, listening to them in the other room, being argumentative, no, being competitive <laughs> as they did different games that they would do. It would, scared me to death. <laughs> scared me to death. You'd hear them in there, they'd go crazy. But they were just like, nah, 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 on each other. They'd be all over each other. And then it was like cake and coffee time. You'd be like, what? <laughs> but who won? And it didn't matter. It was like, oh, it was just, they just like to do, to do it. <laughs> and so we have carried on the tradition. <laughs> we have carried on that tradition. And it's pretty funny sometimes. And, uh, and now it's really bad because, you know, I've got this thing hooked up to my side and it controls the pain that I have, right? Well, you guys know, like I kind of wigged out a few weeks ago. Uh, I, 
I didn't know I did, and most of you didn't know I did, and, and, uh, but my wife convinced me that I did, and a couple other people convinced me that I did. Well, now she questions everything that I say. And she takes notes. And I feel like the crazy person in the insane asylum who is trying to convince everybody to let him go, he's okay, he's not really nuts, and they all look at you like, yeah, we know you're not, but can you take these pills? <laughs> so bad. And then it's like, I don't know, am I crazy or not crazy? And then there's other people in our life, like our kids and stuff, they don't really know to keep track of everything. So when they say things to me, they don't know they need to keep track of it because their mom's going to ask them if they ever told me this. When I say that, oh, Krista told me this, Krista never told you that. Krista did tell me that. No, she never did tell you that. I told you that. Then I call Krista and say, Krista, didn't you tell me that? She goes, no, I, no, I never told you that. Well, uh, 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 your mom thinks I'm crazy now. And then she goes, well, I probably told you that. but I'm not sure. You need to be sure I'm up for five to 10 more years <laughs> in the insane asylum. If you're gonna testify, you need to know. So anyway, I'm really okay. I think, <laughs> but I don't know. But I do know what the Bible says, and we're going to take a we're going to take a look at that. Before we look at the servant as a giver, does the Bible come right out and encourage living like this, like what considering other people more important than ourselves? Let's take a look. Romans chapter twelve, verses ten through thirteen. Get ready, get moving. We don't have much time. You're going to have to move faster than that. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. You there? Can I go? All right. For with the heart of man believes, resulting in righteousness, with his mouth he confesses. He goes on to say, um, Romans 10. No, I'm sorry, Romans 12. Let me hit my button here. <laughs> oh, that's right. then, I, then I got something to blame it on. <laughs> Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Notice that. You know, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Rejoice in hope. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as we continue to move along and take a look at just this overview of what we're to be as God's people. And remember, we're to be conformed into the image of his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 5. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. What he's saying is, you know what? Don't worry about judging the motives of others. You know, one of the things that we fall into the trap is that when people say things to us, we, we, we go past what they say and we try to judge what was on their heart. And man, we get in all kind of trouble when we do that because most of the time we're way off base. You know, we project what we would be thinking and that was the reason we would ask that same question. So therefore, that must be why they asked it. And we find out that, you know what, they had nothing. It was not even close to that. And as a result, it changes our heart. It causes us to become embittered toward other people. And the point that God's saying here is, you know what? Let God judge. And when he comes, he'll bring to full light everything that goes on. And he'll know what their heart was, their motive was, their reason for asking what seemed like a stupid question at the time. And you know what? And just let God deal with that. We don't have to deal with that. We're to, we're to consider others more important than ourselves. We're to build other people up. Uh, Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. First Thessalonians, Paul writes, he says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are also doing. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8 and 5, 11. And we already talked about Hebrews 10, 24. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Are you an encouraging type of person? I mean, do people like being around you? Do people feel, you know, that something's missing when you're not there? You know, oh, so-and-so, they always have the right thing to say. So-and-so, you know, they make me feel, you know, they make me feel good when they're around. They don't compromise truth they don't allow me to live in sin. They don't, you know, turn their back on what is right and what is wrong because they're more, uh, you know, they're more concerned about pleasing us and being friends with us. No, they're committed to truth, and they share that truth in such a loving way that, you know what, I miss them when they're not around. I hope the day that God calls me home that you miss me because I've contributed something positive to your growth and your walk with the Lord. He challenged me. He encouraged me. He loved me in spite of the things that I was doing. I could share anything with him, and he didn't compromise what I needed to hear from the Word of God. And, and sometimes it hurt to hear it, but I always knew where to turn and where to go when I was looking for God's truth when I was genuinely looking for help, 
I knew where to go. See, we all need to be that kind of person so that everybody in our life will miss us for that brief period of time when we're separated until we're all together again. See, you know, God promotes balance. You know, these verses remind us that we're to serve others, we're to consider others more important than ourselves, we're to, uh, we're to encourage others and build one another up. And as Paul said, there's a balance there, though, so that it doesn't look like, you know, we're somehow advocating inferiority, that somehow we're just like, we're just walking around and, you know, and, 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 you know, everybody steps all over us. Well, that's not the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Paul said, I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent of, of apostles. I'm not inferior to any of the apostles. He said, I've become foolish. You yourselves have compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. He was saying that, you know what? Listen, I'm not intimidated by any man, even though I'm a nobody. Well, well, now, what is that supposed to mean? And he was saying, you know what? Here's what it means. I'm not intimidated by any man because I know God is the greatest. Because I'm here to preach Christ and him crucified. And there's nobody greater than Jesus because you can't get to heaven and I can't get to heaven without Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, without Jesus being raised again from the dead three days later, without Jesus extending mercy and forgiveness to me because I believe upon him. You know what? I'm not inferior to any man, but I know it's all about Jesus. And to him, I bow down. He's the greatest. You know, you ever hear people like on TV, they're interviewed sometimes, and they're asked like, who's your hero? And I often think, man, how many times do even believers miss it? Man, Jesus. Jesus has to be our hero. There can't even be anybody else that comes to mind when somebody asks us that question. Who's your hero? Jesus. Why? Look what he's done for me. What has he done? I'm glad you asked. Let me share. <laughs> on the Fox TV on the interview where the gal asked me, are you afraid? And I said, no, because I believe in the promises of God. I immediately began to share the gospel, which later turned out to be Tim Salmon <laughs> being cut into the interview at that particular point. And so, you know, Tim overrode the gospel. <clears throat> now, not by any choice of his own, and we're not going to hold him accountable for that, and there'll be no booing at this particular time. <laughs> but they edited it, and, and, and guys like Tim understand, because there are so many times in the media where you're asked a question, and you give that very direct answer, and you have no control over what's going to show. 
especially on a secular show like that. And yet at the same time, I just praise God that you know, I was allowed to say that I wasn't afraid and I was allowed to talk a little bit about God. And somehow the editor thought that that was okay. And so we praise God for that. You know, we just keep throwing, you just keep throwing that seed out. And you know what? Everything else is in God's hands. We just keep strolling. You know what I mean? Strolling or trolling? <laughs> trolling. While we're strolling. If you're walking, now if you're in a boat, you can just sit in a seat and you can let the boat do all the work. And I'm not crazy. I know the difference between trolling and strolling. All right. So with that balance in mind, let's look at how a servant should give as found in various places in Scripture. First one is this. Genuine servants should give anonymously, and we find that in Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, verses 1 through 4. Why would anybody want to stay in in bed and miss all this? (laughs) I don't get it. Matthew 6, 1 through 4, we read this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by men. It says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Notice how simple this is. He's saying, when we give, the genuine servant gives, we should do so anonymously. No big whoop de doos no fanfare. Notice this, trumpets. I mean, they used to blow trumpets before they gave so that everybody would notice that they were giving so that they could be honored by men. Can you imagine that? Every time somebody walked by the offering box, back by the doors as, as, as you're leaving, they would pull out their trumpet. <laughs> Drop it on in. Everybody would look, notice them, and you know, and applaud them for giving, probably not think much of their trumpet playing. But on the other hand, they would say, wow, look, they're giving. See, no fanfare, no bragging, no blasting a trumpet, no looking for recognition. You know, I like what a former president said when asked how he chose his cabinet positions. He responded this way. He said, I chose men who had a passion for anonymity. I chose people who liked not being in the limelight, who just liked to get in roll up their sleeves, and get the work done. And you know what I've noticed in life? There's two types of people. There are those who like to get the work done, roll up their sleeves, get it done. Titles don't matter. Recognition doesn't matter. None of it matters because they have the passion to do what it is that God's put on their heart. And then there are other people who like the recognition, but they don't roll up any sleeves, and they don't do anything. They get nothing done. They talk more about it, but they get nothing done. 
And so we can measure one another by the fruit of what we actually get done instead of the things that we say that we're going to do. It's like, you know what? Hey, just, just do it. Don't talk about it. Don't brag about it ahead of time. Don't look for recognition and strokes and attaboys, attababies. Atta, you know, don't, it's like, don't look for any of that. You haven't done anything. It's difficult in our culture not to buy into the philosophy of recognition. I mean, if you stop and think about it, you know, churches, you know, are, are certain buildings are named after people, you know, hospitals and universities and schools and libraries and, you know, and, and athletic fields. And I mean, you know, it's the, it's the world we live in likes to recognize people who contribute large amounts of money to accomplish a purpose. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But from God's jurisdiction, from his kingdom's perspective, when we give to be recognized by men, then we've already received our reward. And you have to ask yourself the question, is that reward even close to being in the same realm with the recognition and the reward that God promises his people when he says that I'll give you a, a hundredfold, 20-fold, you know, 50%. You know, it's like, I don't know, you know, we went through and we saw that, you know, God recognizes us differently than the world recognizes. And I've got to believe that when it comes to giving, that God wants us to be anonymous in our giving as it relates to promoting his kingdom and promoting his gospel. And the reason for it's simple. What he sees in secret, he will one day bring to light. And it washes out the motive of anything less than purity. I'm doing this because God dishonors you. Not because somebody else will see. Not because somebody else will give us an attaboy. Not because somebody else will recognize this. But I'm doing it because, one, you've given us the resources. Two, you've laid that burden on our heart. And three, you've moved us to use those resources that are yours to begin with to meet this need, and we're just going to be obedient, and we don't need any attaboys and attababies, and we don't need our back stroked, or we don't need any of that, because being obedient to you is enough, and that's why we do what we're going to do. See, this isn't so much a criticism of fundraising methods in our culture, but it really becomes a reflection of the hearts of those who give only if there is some type of recognition in it for them. You know, would you give if you weren't recognized? Here's another one. Would you give if there wasn't a tax deduction? <laughs> you know, there may be a day that comes where there won't be any more. I, I praise God that, you know, we live in a country that recognizes that and gives us a bonus so that you can actually give more. So if you don't want to give because you're getting a tax deduction for it, then give and give beyond it to cover the tax deduction. So, I mean, you know, there's another way to look at it. 
See, these are, these are good times to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, you know, why do we give? Why do we give? Have you ever really thought about that? You know, 2 Corinthians 8 9 talks about that we're to give as we propose in our heart. Okay, do you sit down together as a family and say, okay, you know, we're looking ahead to this next year and we want to give to the Lord's work. How do we examine that? How do we decide how much to give? How do we decide where to give and to whom to give and why? We need to put more thought and prayer into those decisions because every financial decision is a spiritual decision. See, I want to leave you with one more thing to chew on as it comes to giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at with me at verses 1 through 5, please. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, notice, it doesn't name a specific church. It just lumps them all together. Not one individual is highlighted. There's no statues of bronze or, or anything later erected in Jerusalem. There was no names of super saints that were chiseled in marble or recorded in some book later for others to ooh and awe over. It was a great proof of their servanthood is this anonymity that, you know what, had been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal or ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Here were people that were just dirt poor who couldn't wait to give to help other people who were dirt poor. He says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They were begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as if they had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and later to us by the will of God. Ruth Harms Culkin puts her thoughts down this way, talking about anonymity of giving. I want you to chew on this for a little bit. She writes, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how I eagerly speak for you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and you asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Nobody saw and nobody knew. See, when we practice the art of unselfish living, we prefer to remain anonymous. In fact, most of the people that I know who possess a servant's heart are embarrassed when their names are put up in lights. Nobody saw, nobody knew. Genuine servants should also give gener generous, generously. Notice in 2 Timothy, turn to verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, 15 through 18, he says that you are aware of the fact that all those in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Plagiarius and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, who often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me, and he found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Here the apostle Paul made a couple of notes. He said, here was a guy that often looked for him. Every time Paul was thrown in prison, Onesiphorus would go to these different prisons and look for Paul. Because, you know, they didn't have a prison system like we did. You don't pick up the phone, call, phone and call and say, do you have so-and-so listed there as a prisoner? What's his prison number? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they never knew. And so this guy knew, oh, Paul's in town again, and he's been arrested again. Okay, I'll take care of it. And they would go, and they would go from prison to prison to prison to prison, and they would look for him. Because if they didn't find him, nobody would need his physical needs. No food, no water, no clothing, no uh, cloaks or coats when it was cold. And so this guy often and eagerly would try to hunt him down. And that's what he did. He searched hard. It says that he was abused in the process. And yet at the same time, Paul recognized what he did and said, hey, here's a guy that, you know what? God won't forget. God won't forget him. And that's the insight that we get. You know, what's truly amazing is when we consider this passage, you know, like I said, the Macedonian servants, these saints overflowed with liberality or generously gave. And you know what? And they didn't have anything to give from. And, and you know what's so great? There are people in our body, this church, who give to others in the midst of their own needs. And we see it firsthand. And it reminds me of the churches of Macedonia where they don't even have, and yet they're looking to find a way to meet what somebody else doesn't have. It's awesome. It's godly. It's what a servant is all about. It's what genuine giving is all about. You know, when you give beyond your own ability to meet the needs of those who are hurting, when was the last time that you gave to that degree where it's like, wow, you know what? Well, we can only give so much because we've got to have so much we want to keep for ourselves. We're not going to give to the point where we hurt that bad. Then we don't really get it yet. But we will. Because God's goal is to conform us into the image of his son. So if we're going to be more like Jesus, then guess what? We're going to get more generous as time goes on. And we need to recognize and understand that. We're blessed with such people. And I praise God for you. Number three, genuine servants should give voluntarily. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again, verses 3 and 4. It's not, no one coerces anybody or forces anybody to give. A genuine servant, notice this, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, their own free will, their own volition, Nobody forced them to give anything. It was like, hey, you know what? What can I do? See, we need to become people who see needs before they're brought to our attention. 
where we go to people and say, hey, you know what? Can we help you in that area? We just want to make sure that is, is everything okay? We want to be proactive. We want to be able to go to you as a church body to one another and say, you know what? I, we heard this is what's happening in your home. Is there something that we can do to help you? Because obviously, this is creating a financial hardship of some sort. It's creating some type of struggle. It's creating some type of need that we need to, you know, step up and, and try to figure out what we can do to help you out. You know, we, we don't want people begging or coming and, you know, being embarrassed and saying, well, I've been, you know, I've been wanting to say something, but we, we need to have our eyes and ears open towards one another, and, and the leadership isn't going to see this either all the time because we need help from you who are in small groups with others together, who are, have friendship with others, who are, are, you know, you're looking out for the needs of one another, and then you can bring it to our attention if it's beyond something that you can do, and then we can all work together to show the love of Christ to somebody who's in need, and we can do something about it. But it doesn't happen often because we're not good at it, because we're selfish, and because you've had a bad experience. Oh, I used to go to a church or I went somewhere else, and you know, and something happened and I brought it to their attention and nobody ever did anything about it. Nobody ever called us. Nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever helped us. So therefore what? Well, live and learn, but, it's, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't haul your baggage with you to this church. Let it go, and let's start all over, and let's do things God's way. You had a bad experience? I'm sorry to hear that. We've all had bad experiences, but let it go, and let's all start fresh, and let's trust God that if we're obedient to God's ways, then God will do a mighty work in this body and with the people that then he'll entrust to us because he knows that we're servants and he knows that we're givers. We're not selfish and we're not just looking out for us. Isn't that great? Second Corinthians chapter nine, look at verse seven. <clears throat> Let each one do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that great? Let each one do as he has proposed in his heart. Give it some thought. When was the last time you gave giving a thought? Other than when somebody calls and tries to get money off you over the phone. Seriously, that's like the only time anybody thinks about it sometimes. It's like we need to give giving a thought and then give as we had proposed in our hearts. That's just great counsel. Marion Jacobson in her book entitled Crowded Pews and Lonely People mentions a first grader named Billy whose classmate Jim lost his father in a tra tractor accident. It says, Billy prayed for Jim every day. One day as Billy was walking down the stairs at school, he saw Jim and decided to reach out to him. 
He says, how are you getting along? He said, oh, fine, just fine. Bill continued, do you know I've been praying for you every day since your daddy was killed? The other little guy stopped and looked at Billy, grabbed his hand, led him out back behind the school building, and he began to open up. He said, you know, that was a lie when I said things were going okay, because they're not. We're having trouble with our cows. We're having trouble with the machines. My mom doesn't know what to do, but I didn't know you were praying for me. And it just goes to show us how many people are hurting, but don't feel free to say anything to us until we voluntarily reach out to them first. See, we need people to know that we care about them. And the only way we, we can express that to them is to tell them. Start with your spouse and then with your children and your grandchildren and those around you. But we need to open our mouths and say, I care about you. And if there's anything I can do to alleviate this burden that you have, my wife's been awesome. Talk about alleviating burdens. I mean, making appointments and calling doctors and setting things up and sticking me in the car, checking my pupils every now and then, <laughs> giving me the crazy test. <laughs> you know, but talk about just relieving the burden of having to do all those things while I'm trying to do things that are necessary that are important. You know, it's like, I, I, there's no way. She's been great because she knows what it means to bear one another's burdens, even if it's her husband. Who could be a greater burden than a spouse? <laughs> Just think it through for a second. There's one last characteristic we don't want to miss. In fact, everything we've examined to date is built upon this truth. You know, we can't give anonymously, generously, or voluntarily if our ministry is not personal in nature. So we'll close with 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again, verses 1 through 5. This is just a wonderful passage of Scripture. And you know what? It's something that, you know, we, we couldn't go through enough. You couldn't memorize enough. The key is in verse 5. I want you to see this. And this, not as we had expected... Their giving wasn't as they expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I don't want you to miss that. In order to be a genuine servant who is a gracious, anonymous, generous, personal giver, you've got to give yourself first to the Lord because it starts with a heart transplant. It starts with being born again. It starts with repenting of sins, trusting in Christ, his death, his resurrection, and believing upon him in order for us to get personal with one another. Saying that we'll do something is very easy, but being a person who genuinely and personally gives calls for flexibility. There is much, much more to giving ourselves to the Lord and to others than making empty promises. According to what we've learned, authentic servanthood, genuine biblical servanthood calls for people with a passion for giving whatever without recognition, without reservation, 
without any reluctance and without any restrictions. And I like that. Let me close with this story. True story. Shortly after World War II came, to, uh, shortly after World War II came to a close, Europe began picking up the pieces. Much of the old country had been ravaged by war and was in ruins. Perhaps the saddest sight of all was that of little orphaned children starving in the streets of those war-torn cities. Early one chilly morning, an American soldier was making his way back to the barracks in London. And as he turned the corner in his Jeep, he spotted a little lad with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop. Inside, the cook was kneading dough for a fresh batch of donuts. The hungry boy stared in silence, watching every move. The soldier pulled his Jeep to the curb, stopped, and got out, walked quietly over to where the little fellow was standing, and through the steamed-up window, he could see the mouth-watering morsels as they were being pulled from the oven, piping hot. The boy salivated and released a slight groan as he watched the cook place them onto the glass-enclosed counter ever so carefully. The soldier's heart went out to this nameless orphan as he stood beside him, and he said, Son, would you like some of those? The boy was startled. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I would. The American stepped inside and bought a dozen, put them in a bag, and walked back to where the lad was standing in that foggy cold of London morning. He smiled, and he held out the bag, and he said simply, here you are. As he turned to walk away, he felt a tug on his coat. He looked back, and he heard the child ask quietly. He said, Mr., are you God? Are you God? Man, I thought, you know what? We are never more like God than when we give because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And as the uh, ushers come forward to pass out the elements, it's my prayer that you will pray and reflect upon just the goodness of God and how generous he has been in your life and my life and how we can become more like him, conformed to the image of his son as we become people who give generously to those around us who have a great need. Why don't you close your, close your eyes and bow your heads and just reflect on the goodness of God in your life and what he has done and how he has given to meet your needs.